0: My Govanen, welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel, I'm the Tolkien Geek, and it's time to review episode three of the Rings of Power, and I'm not really happy with the way this direction, with the direction that this show is going right now. In my opinion, this was the worst of the three episodes thus far, and I know a lot of people think it's the best of the three so far, uh, but I have my reasons, and I'll get to them. And before I get to My stuff, I will point out, my wife is still kind of watching along, just to kind of give her thoughts as somebody who's not a real Tolkien aficionado. Uh, And her overall opinion was she hates Galadriel's character, because she has no emotional intelligence, and is just kind of arrogant, petulant, you know, just not a smart character either. And as a result, she's very uninterested in Galadriel's plotline, which is probably over half of this episode, if I had to put a number on it, and frankly is probably going to be a you know the major plotline in every episode because Galadriel seems to be the main character that they're focusing on. So that doesn't bode well. She may not be following along for <laughs> a lot longer. Uh, so that was one of her key takeaways. She was also confused by the Southlands plotline in this episode. And it's not because of anything that the show did, actually. It's because she forgot how the previous episode ended in terms of the Southlands. Which probably does kind of speak to how well the show is doing with getting you invested in a story. Because she couldn't remember what the last thing we knew about Arondir was. And, you know, that if you don't remember that, that, that's... Saying something about the way the story is being told because that should have been kind of memorable. Uh, I'm saving spoilers for later, so I'm not going to explain any of that for anybody who's watching. Uh, but those were kind of two of her major points. She also didn't really think much of the Harfoot plot line in this one, and largely that's just because like very little is happening in the Harfoot plot line, and that goes for all three episodes. So, that that's kind of where she's at overall with, with the whole thing. She didn't have a whole lot of specific commentary like I'm going to have, um, but so I'm going to just get into mine now. She didn't have as many specific comments as she might have had on the first two. Uh, she did say that Numenor looked really pretty, but she also felt like there's already been so much of that kind of pretty that to use her Term, she felt like she had kind of already eaten like a feast of chocolate and mousse and whipped cream and then just been fed more of that when she kind of just wants a salad at this point. Uh, the idea being like we've seen Linden, we've seen Oregon, we've seen Casa Doom, we've seen all these really grand epic scenes, and here's Numenor with another one. Can we just see some really simple backgrounds and stuff like that? So It's like, yes, objectively, the scenery is pretty, but also, can we get something that's a little less grand, maybe, to mix it up? And I agree with that. Uh, In fact, that leads into one of my first comments about this show so far, which is, it's becoming increasingly apparent to me that they're spending a lot of their time, energy, and money on giving the appearance of being really good without putting any effort into the actual bones of the thing that would have made it really good and the visuals is a really good example of that there's a lot of stuff in the visuals that is clearly designed to appeal to people the numenorian stuff the kingdom of linden the kingdom of aragorn the stuff in casadoom all this stuff is really pretty but I also had similar reactions to what we saw in Numenor to my wife, because when I saw it, I was like, okay, another grand city next. I mean, it just, we've seen so many already, because we've seen at least one per episode now, that it's just getting to be kind of, okay, another one. You know, it it needs to be spaced out a little more, and it does need to be mixed up with some other stuff, and as my wife pointed out, even when we see the Harfoots who are living in, you know, not grand circumstances, there's still so much stuff visually going on, like just the the overall scenery when you get a wide shot or the kind of things that they wear and, and do in their habitat. They're just putting so much effort into the visuals that you never get a chance to just kind of like come down from a high point and just kind of relax on that a little bit uh and another area where i thought that that was that that same dynamic is going on is the writing and here i can get a little more specific not even without you know i'm still not even going to have to get into spoilers with it but i mean i can be more specific in terms of i can articulate a little better what i mean because some of the writing just overall, the writing is still hit or miss. Like, some of it's okay, some of it's decent, some of it's just like, what? Uh, and one example of that was, I forget exactly, and this, again, kind of tells you something about the show. I can't remember who said what to whom. I think it had to do with Galadriel, because somebody said something, and I want to say it was Galadriel said in response something along the lines of, you know, it, it it's how do you have the right to speak as if you know me or something like that and it may not have been galadriel but the fact that i can't remember tells you something uh, but the what struck me about the line was whoever it was that says you know why are you, you know why are you speaking as if you know me the line that was that was in response to wasn't a line that would have implied hey i think i know you and it's just like what kind of dialogue is this And another example of similar kinds of stuff is at least twice in this episode, I got what looked like they were attempting Tolkienian language, and by that I mean they were trying to go with old-fashioned language, and the two that stood out to me were sentences in which the speaker threw the word ever in, in a sense of... One at one point, one character says, "Have I not ever, you know, always sought the, you know, the best for you, or something like that?" And then there was another one where it was like, "I have ever done, you know, whatever." And you can see that when they're doing this, that they're going for something with a Tolkienian feel, because Tolkien writes a lot of dialogue in that mode, especially with his higher characters, you know, like Denethor, Faramir, Aragorn, you know, those kinds of characters. He does a lot of that. But so much of the dialogue and the word choices and other stuff continues to be very not Tolkienian. And good examples of this is... This is a weird one, uh, and it kind of gets into spoilers, so I won't give the context away just yet. But a word gets used at one point, de-caravanning. What is... That's not even a word in modern English, let alone would it be a word that would make sense in a Tolkienian context in middle Earth. I mean it's just like, where did you get that word? And there's other and I'm not saying I'm, it may be a word in modern English, but it's one that you never hear uh, so I'm not you know I'm not accusing them of making up words so much as I'm saying that they're using words that even most modern people would never even it wouldn't cross their mind. Uh, there's other words that get used that are similar to me that you know they just throw in these kinds of words that just strike me as so modern and so not middle earth that you know it's like you're trying to kind of sound Tolkienian, but you don't really understand how to do it. You think that by throwing in the word ever in a certain context or by inverting your noun and verb in the grammar, or something like that, makes it all sound like, oh, it's old-timey Tolkien stuff. It's not that simple. Tolkien knew how to write in a mode that requires a little more thought and effort than what these writers are putting in. So, that's, you know, that combined with the visuals and the way that's all playing out, it's like they're spending a ton of time and energy on trying to look like, hey, look at how awesome we can make this show, But if you look at the substance of it, it's like, but it's not that awesome. (laughs) Uh, And in this particular episode, the awesome factor goes way down for me, and a lot of it has to do with the writing. Not so much the dialogue, although that's not great, but in terms of the story elements, and that's where I'm going to get into spoilers. Before I get to that, though, I did have one good thing to say about this episode, which is Lloyd Owens, who plays Elendil. He seems to be a pretty good actor, and I like the way he's, you know, portraying his character so far. I'm not entirely happy with the way his character is developing and being written so far, uh, but that, again, will come up in the spoilers. Most of the other new characters, we get introduced to Numenor in this episode, and we get to meet Muriel, who I don't even think is named, and that's another problem that they continue to do. Oh, We finally find out who Nori's mother, who might be her stepmother, is, uh, and her name is Marigold. We didn't learn that in the first couple episodes, at least not that I caught. We don't know Muriel's name as far as I can tell, but we get that she's the Queen Regent. We get Farazan named, I think, once, and he's the Chancellor, uh, but we have very little interaction with him, And we just, you know, we even, well, that's kind of spoiler, so I won't mention that either. We get a lot of these characters introduced without really getting to know them. And so on top of the four plot lines we already had introduced in the four episodes, we've got a bunch of new characters that we now have to learn. And we get very little time with them. Some of them don't even get named. And it's just like... How are we supposed to, as viewers, keep up with all these people if we don't already know kind of who they are? I, as a person who knows Tolkien and who kept up with a lot of the stuff before the show, I could keep up with that. Like, I knew who Muriel was, I knew that she was the Queen Regent going into this, and so that was easy for me. But, you know, when my wife talked about the episode, she just called her the Queen Regent, because that's all she knows to call her. Her name doesn't come up, so... And I just find it really annoying that they can't give us names and be a little more proactive about investing us into these characters that we're getting introduced to. It's just kind of lazy and sloppy. I think one of the things that they should have done with this show is started with maybe two or three plot lines and gradually introduced more as we get pretty firmly connected with the ones we already have going. And one of the ones that I think they should have waited on was the Harfoot plot line because very little is happening in that plot line. It's really all about Meteor Man and then just drama on the side, and I'll explain that later. Uh, and then the Southlands plot line probably could have waited, or you could have waited with Elron's plot line. And the reason I say that is Elron's plot line doesn't even pop up in this episode. He doesn't make an appearance. The dwarves don't make an appearance. We don't see Gilgalad or Celebrimbor either. It's all about Galadriel, Nori, and Meteor Man and Arundir. We don't even even get to see Bronwyn and Theo in this episode. So I mean, it's only half of the Southlands plot line going on. So of the four established plot lines we had, we dropped one and a half and have, you know follow that and then even then like the Numenor plot line with Galadriel and Halbrand they kind of split up for a while so it's like that becomes two plot lines and then we add in some stuff with Elendil and his family which is going to develop into a plot line I think so it's like guys slow down we have eight episodes we're 3 episodes in we have too many plot lines to follow and I can't have keep up with them enough to be interested in them, it's just, it's poorly executed, and this is what I meant by the pace seeming slow, like the, most of the stuff that's going on, like if you want to cover this many plot lines, you've got to be quick and get things done in those plot lines before they become stale, and some of them are becoming stale, and part of the thing that I missed in this episode was Elrond's plot line, because A, they left us on a cliffhanger the last time, and I wanted to find out more about that, And B, I was actually interested in that plotline because they were doing things with that plotline and moving it in interesting ways. Whereas a lot of the other ones are just kind of like, what are we going to? Where are we getting with this plotline? And we haven't gotten anywhere with some of it. So, anyway, those are kind of my general comments. Now I'm going to get into spoilers. And I'm going to start with the Southlands because that's where the episode actually opens And, oddly enough, the episode closes on the Southlands as well. And when I say Southlands, again, I'm really only talking about Arondir. So, spoilers upcoming. If you don't want to get spoiled by this this review, stop watching now. Go do something else. So, of course, at the end of the second episode, the last thing we saw of Arondir was he had been grabbed from behind by, presumably, orcs. Yes, of course, it's orcs. And now we get to see where he ends up. He gets dragged through basically a a large trench which has some kind of covering over it to keep the sunlight off the orcs and he gets thrown out into an open area where there are already a bunch of other prisoners digging the trench further and further and he gets, you know, chained up with the rest of them and told to dig. As it turns out, uh, his... Watch Warden and the other elf that he was with in the early part of the Southlands plotline are already prisoners here. How did that happen? I am having a hard time figuring that one out, and it's not explained because what happened in the previous two episodes was, you know, their plan was to leave the Southlands because Gilgalad had declared the days of peace were there and they were just going to abandon the territory. And Arondir then comes to meet Bronwyn, because, you know, he's in love with her, apparently. And the other elves, he says, are probably looking for him, but we don't actually know that. But if they're looking for him, they're behind, because he must have left before they started looking for him. And then they almost immediately set off for Hordern, which is where they find the the, uh, tunnel that he ends up following and then getting captured in. Now, granted, in the tunnel, he's traveling slower than he otherwise might, but if the orcs have only just managed to dig far enough to get to the town where Bronwyn lives, they're not all the way to Tirharad where the elves are, you know, stationed. And so if they were going to get captured by the orcs, they might get captured at roughly the same time as him, but we get the impression that they've been there longer than he has. Because he's kind of getting dragged there and, like, half unconscious, and they're already out there chained and working. It's like, how does this happen? Like, the the time, the, the, the things that happen with this show in time compression, it's not even just time compression. It's just they don't seem to care about the timing of events and how they can relate to each other. This seems bizarre. Uh, so that's one problem with this plot line. But anyway... His plot line doesn't get a whole lot of time devoted to it, but essentially what happens is, you know, they're out there working. The watch warden says, if anybody gets a chance, then we need to get to the top of this trench and see where the closest tree line is, and then we can try to figure out a way to escape and get there. And as long as one of us makes it out, then we can go get somebody to come and attack and just sweep these orcs out of here. Which is a nice idea, uh, except... (laughs) The, you know, well, I'll get to that a little bit later, I guess, but as time goes on, they reach a point in the trench where they're blocked by a massive root system from this large tree, and the orcs are like, why aren't y'all working? And the guy's like, well, the watch warden says, we can't go any further, there's a tree in the way, and so one of the orcs says, well, cut it down, and the watch warden's like, well, this tree has stood here since before you crawled out of whatever hole or, you know, And it's earned its right to be here. And I'm just sitting here thinking, I mean, elves love trees, but it's not like they never cut them down. This is one of those things that Peter Jackson's movies did, I think, to people's perceptions of elves. And I I think a lot of people had this perception even before. Elves burn Wood for fire. There's a hall of fire in Elrond's house. There's fires in the woodland realm when Bilbo and Thorin and company are traveling through it and, you know, they try to get food from the elves who are partying in the woods. I mean, it's not like elves think trees are sacred. They have to use them to build, to burn, for furnaces. I mean, like, where do you think they got the ability to forge swords and later on rings of power? You have to burn something to do that. And you have to start with wood. I mean, you just can't get anywhere as a civilization without chopping down trees. It just doesn't work. So this idea that the elves would be this eat up about trees is just a little bit weird to me. Uh, But at any rate, he kind of pushes back against the orcs, and the orcs are about to get all ugly with him, and then one of them's like, you know, you're, you're showing some strength, so you've earned your company a water ration, so he gives water to... The watch warden, who's like really suspicious, and he drinks it, water's fine. He hands it to a Rondir, a Rondir drinks it, it's fine. He hands it to the other elf who was with a Rondir early, he starts drinking it, and then the orc just sweeps out his sword and cuts the guy's throat. And then he falls down and dies. Which, given what a Rondir said in a previous episode, which I didn't touch on at the time, uh, he mentioned that their wounds to the elves heal mostly of their own accord. And this guy got cut in the throat, but it's obviously a shallow cut. And, I mean, like, when I say obviously, it looks like it may have penetrated, at best, a centimeter on the guy's neck. And it doesn't even look like he bleeds that much, but he dies really fast. And I'm just like, you could have made that look a little more convincing. At any rate, he dies... And then the watch warden's about to get all up in the orcs' faces or whatever, and Arondir says, I'll cut it down. So he gets up to start hacking the tree, and of course he looks around and sees that there is in fact a tree line that they could potentially run to. Um, And then later on, they finally do make their escape attempt, and this is where things get a little nutty basically what happens is they take advantage of the fact that the orcs are not willing to come out into the sunny area and he hits somebody you know one of the orcs long enough to distract and get a weapon and then they all start trying to hack away at their chains and the way that they do it is weird to me they get all the workers together kind of get in one spot and line up all their chains in like a crisscross so they can try to cut through them all at once as if anything could ever cut through all those chains at once. It seems maybe they were doing it so that they're not just cutting the chain on ground because then you wouldn't have anything to beat it on. It would just be beaten into the ground. Maybe that was the purpose of it, but it it seemed weird. Anyway, they're using their chains kind of as whips to keep the orcs at bay while they, you know, continue to try to break their chains and it's not going super well. And, you know, my my impression of this was, did anybody really think this plan was going to work? Nevertheless, it kind of almost does, as we will see, because the orcs, who can't stand to go out into the sun, one of them actually tries and gets grabbed by, I forget who, but they, like, pull off whatever clothing he's wearing, and it's like, and I'm just, ah, uh, Orcs don't burn in sunlight. They just don't like it, okay? I mean, don't turn this into, he's a vampire, and he's going to melt away in the sun, that's just uh, so cheap anyway, the orcs finally give up the idea of trying to attack the elves and the other prisoners in, you know, just open sunlight, and they say bring out the war and then they bring out the war, and my word, it is butt ugly, and I don't mean that in a good way, I mean like, it looks people were sharing on Twitter somebody, I forget who it was shared on Twitter an image of one of the hyenas from The Lion King, and was like, this is basically what it is. And I'm like, that is surprisingly accurate, and that's not a good thing. Uh, so that was terrible. But anyway, the warg attacks, and then you know we get a fight scene where, uh, again, they don't know how to do fight scenes in this show. Their fight scenes are awful. They cannot choreograph these things for for anything, because instantly... Somebody tries to get into it with the warg with something like a spear, it's not an actual spear, but I mean, effectively, they're using what they have as a spear, and just uselessly misses and then does nothing, and then the warg tears him to shreds, and then another one uselessly gets creamed by the warg. It's like the troll fight with Galadriel. They can't have anybody do anything useful until the one person comes along who actually knows what they're doing, and then... And it's, I'm not even trying to say that they're trying to just make a Rondir and Galadriel and, you know, these people look awesome. It's not that. It's just they apparently don't know how to shoot a fight where a person can be engaged and look competent and still die. Like, they don't know how to do it, it seems, because two people get absolutely slaughtered by the warg and then... A rondir uses his chain to kind of wrap around the warg and then get it trapped under the tree roots of the tree that they were supposed to cut down and then keeps it trapped there while Watch Warden uses a weapon. And we still don't know this guy's name either, by the way. It's like all we know him is as is the Watch Warden. Really? Anyway, he cuts his chain finally. He gets basically like a shovel as a platform. So at least they were kind of... Smart with that, and he finally hacks through it, which I still find a little hard to believe. Those chains look pretty well forged. They didn't look like nothing chains, and he's got primitive tools to work with, but he still manages to cut through it. Okay, fine, whatever. Um, He finally cuts through it, and he gets out, and he makes off, and a like, okay, good, now I can. And then the warg's about to come out and get him. And to be honest, I don't even remember what happens to the warg which, again, shows you something's wrong with this scene. I can't remember if he does something to it to completely knock it out or what, but anyway, then he climbs to the top of the trench, even though his chain is still attached, so it's not like he can go anywhere, and he sees that the watch warden is just standing there, and he kind of slowly turns around, and there's an arrow sticking out of his chest, which means it had to have come from way out in front of him in the tree line, which means there must be orcs out there in the tree line? The elves with their sharp eyes never saw this, apparently. Uh, and this guy gets hit with an arrow, you know, just out. And it's not like the tree line is that close, either. I mean, it's pretty distant. You know, probably at least a couple hundred yards, I'd say. I'm not a very good judge of distance. But anyway, and then as he turns around, he gets shot again. And elves with their wounds that heal mostly of their own accord apparently die very quickly from a couple of arrows uh, because he drops and he's dead. And then of course Arondir gets pulled back down, and the orcs are about to just execute him on the spot. And then one of them's like, "No, bring him to Adar." And by the way, we have heard that name before mm-hmm. in this episode because it was they were talking about how their leader apparently is named Adar and the watchword and says, you know, Sauron had many names, maybe this is one of them, because your asks, why would they use an elvish name of their leader? So now it's like, okay, we're going to meet Adar, and then they're chanting the name, and we see a character coming up with a, in a blurred out background, so we can't really see who it is, and as he gets kind of close, end of, end of episode. <laughs> so like I said, the Southlands is where we end the episode, as well as where we begin it, and that You know, this is another thing that I am finding annoying about this show is all the cliffhangers. At the end of episode one, Galadriel jumps out of the boat and we get the meteor. At the end of episode two, we see the Dwarf King Durin open a casket and there's something in it and they linger on that shot like, what is it, what is it, what's black? And now we get this one where it's like, oh, there's whoever this person is in it. Black. It's like... Guys, it's Lord of the Rings, it's not a thriller, stop giving me cliffhangers, this is stupid. If you can't keep your people engaged without in doing cliffhangers so that they try to come back every week to find out what it was that they didn't learn last time, you're not writing your show well enough. You shouldn't have to do that. That's the Southlands. Harfoots I'll cover next, because they'll be quick, and the Numenor I'll do last, because they're, that's the bulk of the episode, and there's a lot to talk about there. The Harfoots, not much happens, honestly. Uh, Nori, of course, after the last episode, wanted to find out more about the star this star formation, the constellation that the stranger was creating with the fireflies. And Poppy's like, I don't want to help you. The guy murders fireflies. Uh, but she threatens to basically out that she put fireweed in somebody's toe cream. And I'm like, okay, okay, toe cream. And, okay, sure. Uh, and so she watches while Nori goes into Sadok's wagon to find his book, which is where she expects to find information. Sadok is leading like some kind of ceremony that apparently they do before they set off on their migration. Meanwhile, of course, Nori's dad, Largo, who we barely know his name for that matter, uh, he's still with a bum leg, and people are worried that he's not going to be able to make it. And... You know, one of my thoughts was, like, wasn't the whole point of Nori's mom, Marigold, her stepmom, not sure which, uh, wasn't one of the points that she made that we Harfoots look after each other? They're worried about being just left behind, but apparently, so Harfoots don't look after each other, I guess. Anyway, Nori gets in, she, you know, looks at the book, she finds the constellation, she pulls out the page that it's on, uh, or starts to, and then Sadok comes back, and he's going to grab a speech that he wrote for the occasion, which, what is it with these people in written speeches? Elrond writes a speech for Gilgalad. galad Sadok writes a speech for himself, it's like, hobbits? And let's face it, that's what these hardfoots are, they're hobbits, are known for liking short, sweet, you know, speeches that don't really say anything besides what everybody already knows anyway. Uh, so... You know, it just seemed like a weird thing to do, to have a speech. But anyway, he comes in, so Nori has to hide under his desk or table or whatever it is. And Poppy tries to distract him so that Nori can get the page, which was still on the top of the table. And it results in, you know, comedy, but not very good comedy. And eventually she does get the page, and Sadok does leave, and so Nori gets out. Uh, And she doesn't really look at the page but leaves it somewhere and goes and sits down while Sadok goes goes on this speech about the people that have been left behind. And left behind in this context means died or something in some way because he goes on about people who have been lost in mudslides, people who have been lost to wolves, and seemingly Poppy, who is Nori's best friend, uh, apparently her whole family was, like, lost somehow. I can't remember if they were the mudslide example or what, but... They're talking about these people who have been left behind. And they call them left behind, even though like it's not like they just left them behind and they died. It's They died and therefore they were left behind in a mer- metaphorical sense. So that brings the whole idea of Largo and the other Brandyfoots being left behind because of his bad leg. That gives a whole different serious meaning to this. And it's like, these Harfoots are hard... Uh, I don't want to use the word, but you know what I'm going to say. Like, if that was a second word following that, you know what I mean. They are brutal to each other, apparently. It's like, man, you can't keep up. Sucks for you. Just go get eaten by a wolf. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, she leaves the page with the constellation somewhere, and the stranger comes up, and we don't know if this was planned, we don't really know anything because a stranger can't communicate and we don't really get much information out of Nori about it. But he comes up, finds it, starts looking at it, walks over to where a fire is. We can see the other, the Harfoot's off in the distance and he's trying to look at it in the fire and he recognizes it. And we can see in his face that he's trying to make sense of it or something. But then the page catches fire. He tries to put it up, stands up, walks into a lean-to, a tent, or something. I don't know what it is. It's some kind of cloth hanging on A pole, and Trips stumbles over and gets knocked down and knocks it over him and then stands up, covered by this, you know, whatever it is, cloth, and all the Harfoots are like, because, you know, there's this giant in their camp now, and he pokes his head through finally, and then it all comes out that it's Nori's fault, and this is where the de-caravaning comes up, because... The female Harfoot, named Malva, I think is her name, who is constantly being a negative Nancy, uh, she says that our law is clear, and if you break it, you have to get de caravan And Sadok basically says, well, yeah, the law is clear, but Nori is basically a young impetuous idiot who doesn't have any sense between her ears, and so we're going to let him slide, but they're going to be at the back of the caravan. And this is harkening back to a conversation that Marigold and Largo had because Largo is like, we'll just ask to be put at the front of the caravan so we don't get left behind. Which, as my wife pointed out in conversation, this is a thing that wolf packs do. Wolf packs will put their slowest member up front so that they set the pace so that no wolf gets left behind. So in doing this, Sadok is saying, okay, we're not going to de-caravan you, but we're going to de-caravan you. And bear in mind that all the evidence that comes out is that it's entirely Nori's doing, not Largo's, and so it's like, you know, if they wanted to leave somebody behind, it would be Nori, but he's gonna leave their entire family behind because of what Nori did. And by the way, the whole time they're discussing all this, the stranger's just standing over there, watching the proceedings, clearly not hurting anybody. So it's not like he's doing any harm, or even causing a ruckus. So, because Nori has talked to a big person who is not harming anybody. They're going to put them at the back where Largo is sure to fall behind and thus de-caravan them implicitly, and then they're all just probably going to die because they won't have the rest of the, the group to... It's just... Oh my gosh, these people are just... Nevertheless, they do, of course, end up going with the rest of the group on the migration at the back, and they're having a really hard time keeping up because Largo somehow is walking around on his foot, but he acts like it's his back that's his problem. I don't understand that. Uh, and then they stop at one point, and Poppy is right in front of them, and she looks back and is feeling really sorry for him, and then their cart just kind of moves by itself, and out pops the stranger. And Nori's like, well, this is how we make it. The stranger helps us, and we help him. And it's just like, she almost got de caravaned for having the stranger being somebody that you talk to outside the camp, and now you're going to actively recruit his assistance. that's not going to lead to decaravaning? Because if they're willing to have him help you and not decaravan you, why would they be decaravaning you? Ah, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. And that's the last we see of the Harfoots, thank goodness. So, now it may seem like a lot has gone on in the Harfoot plot line, but if you think about it, what has actually happened? There's been a lot of drama about the migration and how they're, you know, in danger and how they should all stick together and all that. And, you know, no real development of anything going on. And then Meteor Man lands and Nori tries to help him and we still don't know anything about him or who he is. That's the Harfoot plotline in a nutshell in three episodes of following it. So again, slow pace. Nothing is happening. Step it up bring us somewhere with this because it's, it's not going anywhere. And I don't want to watch a plot line for eight episodes just to find out something happened that might be relevant to what's going on elsewhere in Middle-Earth. That's just not, it's just not good writing. It's just not. Um, so yeah, there's the Harfoot plot line. And now we can look at Numenor which is really annoying on multiple levels, and again, this comes down in part to Galadriel, who, as my wife said, is arrogant, hot-headed, and just not smart. Um, <laughs> we start with Halbrand and Galadriel in the the hold of the ship that rescued that came across them at the end of the prior episode, and we end up. Seeing Halbrand's already awake, he's eating. Gives Galadriel some of the food, and he says, "Don't worry, it's not poison. If that's what you're worried about, at least not for humans." Which is such a strange joke to make. I mean, like humans and elves eat the same food. Like what? <sighs> anyway, that's. Yeah, I just found that stupid. They end up coming up out of the hold, and they meet Elendil, who basically says, "It's my. I'm obliged to take you to my betters, and they'll decide your fate." <laughs> and so he takes them to numenor of course they, it doesn't say that they're taking him taking them to numenor but as they arrive halbrand's like where are we and galadriel gives kind of a background and says it's only one place it could be and that's numenor the island of island nation of men and halbrand says you mean men like me could build a kingdom like this and she's like well not men like you you served morgoth these people were friends with the elves and i'm like Dang, ouch, what a, mmm, Galadriel, like, chill on the, you know, hatred there a little bit. I don't think she meant it as a hate remark, but it sounded so untactful. Uh, But she gives a little bit of a brief history, which was a little bit too much exposition, I think. And it's kind of necessary, because we kind of need to know some of this stuff, but it, it just struck me as a poorly constructed exposition dump more or less. Uh, And she talks about how, at one time, elves were friendly with Numenor, but now they've been excluded from Numenor for a while, and so they're probably hostile. And naturally enough, Halbrand therefore advises, well, maybe we should be diplomatic in here and not ruffle any feathers. Uh, And by the way, it's also been noticed that Galadriel's dagger is on Elendil's belt, which makes sense. I mean, like, you bring somebody out of the water that you don't know their intentions you take away their weapons Uh, but Galadriel notices this so they get taken before the queen who is holding court and Galadriel immediately ditches any idea of diplomacy (laughs) I mean like just throws that idea out the window and goes straight for I want to go back to Middle Earth and you better help me kind of mode and it's Galadriel is, you know, canonically at this point would be over 3,000 years old at a minimum. We don't know how old she was when she left uh, Valinor, but she had to be an adult, plus all the years of Numenor up to this point. You know, she ought to be over 3,000 years old. Halbrand looks to be about 25, if I had to put a guess to it. And he has... A much greater wisdom about how to handle the situation than she does. She goes in there knowing that she's probably going to be looked at with hostile eyes because she's an elf, and she immediately, when she's asked to declare herself, you know, names herself as a Noldor, you know, commander of Gilgalad's armies of the House of Finorfit, like just emphasizes. More as much as she possibly can, that, yes, I'm an elf. All I want to go do is go back to Middle-earth, so please give me a ship. It's like, all you had to do was say, I'm an elf, who, you know, I'm Galadriel, I am from the kingdom of Linden, and I'm trying to get back to Middle-earth because I, you know, lost my ship. And I'm not trying to get in your hair. That's all she had to do. But no, she just goes full guns blazing and... Halbrand has to interrupt and step in and be like, hey, you know, like, before you decide what to do with this, like, give it a few days, think about it. And, you know, <laughs> Halbrand doesn't want to go back to Middle-earth, so he's trying to find a way to stay, anyhow. Uh, also, at the end of this scene, Halbrand kind of grabs her by the arm and hands her the dagger, so he clearly has pickpocketed Elendil somehow. We meet Farazon in this scene. He's named as the Chancellor. Uh, and. We also get the joke that was kind of hinted at in the, one of the promotional videos where, you know, she gives this really long winded description of who she is. And then Hallbrand says, Hallbrand, from the Southlands. And it's not as clearly meant to be a joke in the show, but it still seems like they're kind of trying to land like a, ha ha, that's funny. And it just doesn't land. I don't know if they were trying to. The humor in the show is not well done. I mean, like every now and then I'll chuckle at it, but it's, cheap laughs, and mostly at the expense of the Harfoots. So anyway, that kind of starts them off. At the end of this, it was decided that, you know, they're going to stay there for like three days, and Galadriel, of course, is mad at this. She's like, I don't have time, and she's also told that she's going to be confined to palace grounds. After this, we see Muriel meeting with Elendil. Well, actually, she meets with Farazon first, who... Basically, informs her of who Elendil is in terms of his family and whatnot, and it's like Muriel wouldn't know. So they're changing something here because Elendil would have been currently, or at least heir to, Lord, being the Lord of Andunia, uh except I think maybe by that point in Numenor's history they had been removed from that position, but it was a very recent thing, so it's not like that was a. It's not like Elendil had been you know, in a family that was taken out of the nobility for a long, long time, Muriel would have known who Elendil was. So here, it's like, he's apparently been out, his family has been out of favor for a long time, it's like, eh, that's just pointless, why did they have to do that? And apparently, all he is, is a sea captain. And Farazhan basically informs her of this, and then she has a meeting with Elendil himself, and basically gives him some kind of a promotion and says, you know, keep your eye on Galadriel. Now, the way this is going down makes me think that Muriel is going to end up being a sympathetic character who is kind of trying to help Elendil help Galadriel behind the scenes, because we also get some information about her father being, you know, a someone who was favoring the elves and therefore was kind of cast out by his own people and lives... Basically, as an exile in the in the island, and we don't really get any information beyond that. We don't know how, why, what, but she's ruling in his stead, which is like, if she, if he was kicked out because of his favoring the elves, presumably that means she's not getting kicked out because they think that she doesn't favor the elves, and yet she seems to be being kind of going out of her way to let Elendil kind of let Galadriel do stuff and and so it seems like maybe they're setting up that she's going to actually be a sympathetic character but I mean who knows at this point I just don't know um, so then we see Galadriel has escaped like we don't even see her escape we just hear some guards being like oh you're going to tell them that she got out and it's like I'm not going to tell them and then we see her running around kind of on rooftops and she drops down close to where the the uh, ships are harboring and she's looking at one and Elendil apparently was following her or something happened to be there. I don't know. Uh, and basically says, I would be looking for this kind of boat if I were you. And of course, the is like, what? And you know, they get in a conversation and he basically says, I'm going to have to, you know, bring you back. And she's like, what if I kill you first? And, you know, threatens him with the dagger. And he's like, well, what if I did get my, you know, shout for help out? And then you just be stuck here forever. Um, uh, and he also indicates to her that he's a friend by speaking in Quenya. Oh yeah, speaking in Quenya. I forgot this in the Southlands part. The elves in the Southlands are apparently speaking Quenya, which, why? They're Sindarin elves at best, maybe Sylvan elves. They should be speaking Sindarin, or maybe even something that doesn't resemble Cinderin. Like, why are they speaking Quenya? Anyway, that's just kind of a lore nitpick that's not really that important. But anyhow, he speaks Quenya to uh, Galadriel, who picks up on the fact that, oh, you actually speak Elvish, and he's like, yeah, it's still taught in our Hall of Lore, and she's like, where is that? Quarter day's ride, let's go. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I'm, of course, this is, this is part of the reason why I think Muriel is trying to help him behind the scenes, because why is Elindo letting her go a quarter day's ride from where they were if she's supposed to be confined to to palace Grounds and he was going to, you know, not let her escape on a ship? It seems like he has a little more leeway than he really should. Anyway, they go on a horse ride, and this apparently makes Galadriel ecstatic. She loves the fact that she gets to ride a horse. And there's nothing wrong with that, except the first time we see her on the horse, it's like she's got this really stupid grin, like, this is fun! Not like a, oh, this is great, but more like a child, like, Wee! I am not kidding. That's what her face looks like. Um, not my face. I mean, she doesn't have a beard. But, I mean, like, that kind of emotional expression is what I got out of that. The second time we see her face, it looks a little bit more like, oh yeah, this is great. Uh, but the first time is like, you almost wonder if Morpheus Clark was on a horse for the first time and was legitimately reacting to "ooh, this is fun." I don't know that, I'm, but that's that's the facial expression she gave, and it just struck me as like, mm, "that's a little weird." Um, and we linger on this for a while. We see them riding through countryside, and we get this really slow mo shot of the hooves beating into the sand and it drags way longer than it should for a show that's trying to give us four, five, six plot lines all at once and we're we're already in three of eight episodes and we have a lot to do. It's like, I don't mind lingering on things, but it seems like they linger on things that they shouldn't and then they just don't get where they need to with other stuff. Anyway, the main point being they get to the Hall of Lore and of course Galadriel's reason for wanting to go here is to find out about that mysterious symbol that was on Finrod's body and that nobody could understand. Even our wisest couldn't discern the meaning of the symbol. So she draws a makeshift version of it, and Elendil gives it to whoever is the librarian for the day, I guess, and says, we're looking for any information you have on this. And then they have a conversation while this is going on, and They end up talking about Elros and Elrond. She mentions, I didn't know that Elros built this, and he's like, oh yeah, you would have known Elros. That's amazing. And then there's a tapestry, I think it's a tapestry, where it shows Elrond on one hand and Elros on the other, and they're kind of going their separate ways. Um, And she mentions that she was always closer to Elrond. Which, okay, we get a nice little throw there to stuff. And another example of things being kind of thrown out there to be like a lore Easter egg is... Sadok, in the conversation after the stranger comes up, says, I've heard of people becoming stars, but not the other way around. Obvious reference to Arendil. It's like, what? How would the Harfoots know this story? (laughs) They keep away from men and elves, you know, as a rule, so much. How would they pick up on the story of Arendil? They're way too far east to have gotten that story from any elf that would have known about it. Like, Anyway, just further examples of the writing not really making any sense. Um, So they have this conversation. It doesn't really tell us a whole heck of a lot, but then the librarian or whoever comes back and brings some parchments, and Elindil looks at it, and it does have the same symbol on it, and he says that it's something that was recovered from a spy who was retrieved from an enemy dungeon somewhere, and he drew this to remember where the tower was or something like that. And then she's like, oh my gosh, I've been blind. And then she looks over at a map and is like, this is a map of the Southlands. And it's, you know, it's like the White Mountains and then it's Mordor. And, you know, this was speculated about long before the show started on Twitter. Matt over at Nerd of the Rings was one of the people who did this, shout out to him. Uh, I never tried to speculate about this stuff because I just didn't want to, but like the... The wisest of elves couldn't figure out this was a map of Mordor. And it's been sitting in Numenor's library for probably ever since Numenor was there because Numenor wouldn't have had a spy in an enemy dungeon in the last several thousand years because Sauron hasn't been found or any other orc has been found for hundreds of years. So it's like, obviously this came from before in like the end of the first age or something or maybe early in the second age... And so it's been sitting there forever, presumably since before the elves and Numenor had their falling out, which is never explained, by the way. They don't say why or anything. And yet nobody thought to figure out like what this symbol is and where, what it could possibly mean. This just, this to me, is one of the worst examples of the writing. And it's it shows that what one of the things they're trying to do, they want to hit certain beats and they're just not they're not writing the music to make that beat fit in naturally, so to speak. They are just like, I wanna hit an F sharp right here. This music sounds good. F sharp and it's just completely out. And it's like why you you couldn't make that work a little better. The wisest elves couldn't figure it out, but people out on Twitter could. And it took Galadriel being talked to by lindil who somehow knew the provenance of this document. And then the other crazy thing about it is, he's like, what's the inscription? Oh, Galadriel says, that's black speech. And it says that it's about a plan to be enacted in the event of Morgoth's defeat, about a place where they could have a realm of their own, and blah, blah, blah. That's when she figures out that it's Mordor, because it's talking about a place, which doesn't even make sense, because the whole point, the whole point of the map was that the prisoner drew it to figure out, to remember where the tower, what tower, what tower, uh, where it was. Which, in context, seems to mean where he was being kept, not where the plan was to go to. But anyway, so, it. it she can read black speech? Like, Isildur couldn't read black speech? <laughs> Nobody probably could read black speech. It's like, wh- how does she know black speech? The black speech, okay, obviously they're messing with the lore here, because the black speech was invented by Sauron after the First Age, and he hasn't been seen in this show since the First Age, so he hasn't invented it yet, or if he has, it's not something anybody would know about. Hmm. So obviously they're trying to treat it as like the black speech goes all the way back to the First Age, which it didn't, but okay, fine, we're bending the lore, whatever. The other problem I have with this is why is this symbol on Finrod's arm? Why is Sauron leaving clues for just anybody to find? That, oh, by the way, I'm putting my secret base in Mordor. <laughs> I mean, really? Why is it in the fortress in the far north? She said that that's where the orcs gathered after Morgoth was defeated. How she knew that, I don't know. But why was it just there in Anvil? And why would Sauron have put it there? Like, how would orcs in the far northwest of Middle-earth have figured out from that symbol that it meant Mordor if the elves, who have been occupying the Southlands for hundreds of years, not figure this out? It makes no sense. And it's, it's not even that they're just trying to make Galadriel look like the only smart one. I mean, she even self-deprecates and says, I've been blind. Yeah, you and literally everybody else for thousands of years, apparently. Uh, But it's it's not even that they're trying to make Galadriel look like the only smart person in the room, because she's not. It's literally everybody who's ever put any thought into this is apparently a complete idiot. Anyway, they figure all this out, and she's like, oh my gosh, if Sauron has returned, we're all in trouble. And so, of course, they head back to, you know, whatever the main city they were in originally, which is never named, by the way. It could be Arminolos, it could be Romina, it could, I don't know. Um, meanwhile, Hallbrand has been getting into some trouble, because Hallbrand, unlike Galadriel, who was confined to palace grounds, has been free to roam around. Why, I don't know. Uh, we get some stuff where he is called a low man, which is, I am assuming, a reference to what Farmer will... It tell Frodo in The Lord of the Rings that we have, you know, kind of this threefold division of men. There's the High, there's the Middle or the Twilight, and then there's the Wild or the Men of the Shadow. He never uses low, you'll note in that, but anyway, the people of Numenor apparently think that Halbrand is a low man, which probably means that he was one that sided with Morgoth. And as a result, uh, he's trying to get a job with a blacksmith and you know, he's talking up his skill at smithing and all this other stuff, and the blacksmith says, well, it doesn't matter, you can't forge steel in Numenor unless you get your guild crest, and he shows him, like, this crest that he's got sitting on his uh, chest, which, of course, seems like a strange thing, because it's like, you couldn't apprentice the guy? How do you get a guild crest if you can't even begin to apprentice? I, I don't Whatever the bureaucracy in Numenor seems weird. Speaking of bureaucracy, going back to that Mordor plan thing, the way they talk, the way that she talked about it—a plan to be enacted in the event of Morgoth's defeat—it gave me this weird vibe of, like, this is the bureaucratic, you know, process for replacing the CEO when he dies or resigns. It's like another example of the writing not being very Tolkienian. A plan to be enacted in the event of Morgoth's defeat. You think Tolkien would write that prose? I don't. Uh, Anyway, Hallbrand walks away despondently, and next we see him in some kind of tavern or something eating a meal, and some other guys are like, hey, you're that low man who came in with the elf, right? He immediately becomes not diplomatic, which is like, you're the one who was telling Galadriel to be diplomatic earlier because of the hostility. You've already been you know, turned down for a job, you can't do anything, and you're just going to immediately make enemies. Why? Uh, so they come over and start talking to him, and, you know, he turns the tables around a little bit, and says, well, how about I just buy a round of drinks for everybody, because here I am taking advantage of y'all's hospitality, and I haven't done anything for y'all. Uh, the reason he does this is because one of the people who's messing with him has a guilt crest. And... At the end of this sequence, of course, they're all laughing and happy and probably a little bit tipsy or something. But anyway, he walks away, and the next thing you know, he pulls out the guild crest and flips it, and he's like, ha-ha! And as he as he's walking down the alleyway, the guys come around the corner like, you really think I didn't, well, wasn't going to miss it? And, of course, they start to get into roughing him up after he says, please don't do this. And they start to rough him up, but then he just absolutely thrashes four of them. Four of them, again. And they cannot do fight scenes. The fight scenes in this are some of the worst aspect of this show so far. Every fight scene has been stupid. Every single time, I'm like, why is that guy just standing there doing nothing? Why is he just letting him hit him like that? Why, 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 why? The fight scenes are awful. At any rate, Hallbrand takes them all out. One of them runs away and brings a bunch of guards, and they take him to jail, apparently. In a side lo- note, we get some time with Isildur and Elendil and Isildur's sister, Arian. We don't know much about Arian yet. We know that Isildur apparently is training to be a sailor, and the first time we see him, he's on a boat, and the person on the boat is apparently the guy that's, like, training the cadets. They call him cadets, yes, which I don't like that either, frankly. Uh, but anyway, Isildur is kind of like looking off on the horizon in kind of a dreamy way and has to be brought back to reality by his shipmates. And it comes out that, you know, he's just really eager to get out there. And I can't remember most of the conversation that he has after they come to shore, which, again, tells you something about the quality of the writing. It's not that memorable. Um, Arian meets him on the shore, and I don't remember much about that either, you know, uh, so there you go. But anyway, then we later get a scene with Elendil and Isildur and Arian, And Elendil is getting into this conversation with Isildur about his time as a cadet or whatever and how he's going to, you know, make uh, pass whatever test or whatever they do. And he's like, I'm thinking about putting it off for a year. And, of course... Luke wants to go to Toshi Station to get some power converters, and Uncle Owen tells him that, you know, you can waste time with your friends later. Wait, that's the wrong movie. Uh, but that's really the vibe you get out of this. Aarian, meanwhile, is kind of trying to defend him. We don't know exactly why, but Asildur brings up, well, you told Anarian, and so we know Anarian is in the show, at least. He has a brother named Anarian, uh, and Lindel's like, I will tell you what I told Anarion. And we get a- interrupted because Arian gets a message delivered to her. And the message turns out to be, hey, you've been accepted into the Guild of Builders. Or, I think it was the Guild of Builders. And he's like, wait, I thought they weren't reconsidering. And she's like, Sildor told me to reapply. And so he was gonna go back to talk to Sildor, and he had left the table. This whole thing, this sequence where we see all this, is strange to me because on the one hand Sildor really wants to get out there and sail but he wants to put off doing whatever for a year it's like why we get no explanation I feel like I was somebody who just happened to be at the next table at a restaurant and overheard just enough of a conversation to know that there's family drama but I know nothing about it I have no explanation and it has no significance to my life I don't know why this scene is there I just don't it, it was just weird uh, but anyway, that's kind of what we get on the side with Elendil. Elendil comes down pretty hard on Isildur and Aarian for different things. And this is part of the character writing that I didn't like. It's like, I would rather him not be like that. If you wanted to create family drama within the family, there are plenty of good ways to do it. And one of them was, of course, put into the idea of the story by Tolkien himself at different stages where somebody in that family was going to be a king's man versus a faithful in, uh, as you know, the father was going to be a faithful and the, the son a king's man, you could do that, and it would be a much more interesting thing. As it is, it's just a cliche, which is of course why I bring up the Star Wars reference, because it's just like, I've seen this a million times. What did it do to advance the plot? What did it do to do anything? We don't get any progress on any of this in this episode, so it's like, I have to wait till the next episode to see if this scene is even relevant to anything. It's just so bad. Um, anyway, Galadriel comes back and then she meets Halbrand in the dungeon how she knows he's there, we don't know doesn't really matter and she starts talking to what, to him about what she found out and she also ends up showing him oh by the way, I found this in the Hall of Lore which is a symbol, a crest basically of the thing that he's got around his neck that he's had this whole time which he kind of tried to hide away from her while they were still out at sea I didn't mention that in the first episode because there wasn't really anything to talk about about it, but now there is. But she's found it and she says it's like the symbol of the crest of the king of you know the Southlands who united them all under one banner. And he's like, they have no king now because it's you, isn't it? And he's like, No, I found this off a of de- I stole this off of a dead guy or something. And I'm like, yeah, sure. Nobody believes that, Halbrand. <laughs> uh, literally nobody <laughs> believes that. I don't know. Somebody may believe that. I don't. I mean, we already see that Hallbrand is apparently, according to his own terms, a really skilled steelworker. He's a very competent fighter, to judge. I mean, I can't say that he's a very competent fighter because his opponents were just completely incompetent, but the point seems to be that he's a very competent fighter. So they're trying to tell us that he is. They're just doing a very bad job of it. Uh, but at any anyway, rate,. He basically says, "I'm not the hero you seek," and it comes up that, of course, the this king who united everybody under one banner united them in the service to Morgoth. And he's kind of pointing that out as like, you know, this is I'm not the hero you seek. And of course, this gets back to that whole idea of like, you know, if your ancestor was bad, you know, 18 generations ago, then you still are tainted with his blood or whatever, like the Watchwarden said to Arondir in that other episode. It's like, man. Hallbrand, of course, doesn't want to have anything to do with any of this, and so he's just trying to get out of it, but Galadriel is having none of it. She also says something along the lines of, he he points out, you still don't have an army and you're not back in Middle-earth, and she says, that's all about to change. Presumably because she expects Queen Muriel, upon the discovery of this information about what the symbol means, to just roll over and give her an entire army to go to the Southlands and do whatever. And I'm sure that's exactly what's going to happen, because we've already seen in promotional materials that She and Hallbrand are going to get armor and they're going to ride horses and they're going to do stuff battle-wise. And I'm sure that's how some of these plot lines are going to converge. But we don't get any indication of that yet. Uh, But, I mean, that's... To my memory, anyway... And again, if I'm forgetting something, that tells you something about the writing. To my memory, that's more or less where this plot line peters out. So, looking back overall... Most of the problems that were already there with the show are still there. The writing is at times okay, but many times clunky and sometimes downright bad in terms of the dialogue. The storytelling and that kind of writing is getting worse because now there's just like, why are there so many contradictions and things that just don't make sense with each other? There are now more plot lines to follow, more scenes that don't seem connected to anything and therefore seem pointless I mean, it's just... There's too much going on. Well, there was one other thing that happened kind of towards the end of the Numenor episode, and that's... We see Muriel come somewhere and come up to... We don't actually see anybody, but she apparently sits... She sits down, seemingly, and starts talking and says, Father, the time that we have feared has come. The elf has arrived. And And that's it. I mean... (laughs) The elf has arrived. The time that we have feared has come. Okay, and we get no explanation. Again, this is just one of those cliffhanger things where it's like, what does she mean? Tune in next time to... Stop it. Stop it. It, This show should not be ending in cliffhangers. As much money and stuff has gone into this show, you should be able to write something engaging enough that people want to come back without being left on a cliffhanger. That's just... That ought to be able to be done. I just cannot stand how they feel like they have to end on a cliffhanger every time to get you to come back. It's like people were either going to be invested in this show or not. And frankly, three episodes in, and I am seriously worried about how invested I'm going to be to finish reviewing the entire first season. And I have very serious doubts about coming back for season two. Now, again, not everything in the series in this in this episode was absolutely horrible. But there were enough things that annoyed me, and very little to make up for that, that I'm just like, eh. You know, my, my previous rating that I would have given the first two episodes kind of combined would have been somewhere between a 6 and a 7. And just as context, for me a 6 is kind of where I start liking something. Anything below a 6 is like, I don't really want to waste my time. Uh, you can't know what your rating of something is going to be before you watch it, but generally speaking if, I wanna, if I'm curious about something that's on a streaming platform I will look at the IMDB rating and if it's below 6, I'm like, I'm not even going to give it the time of day. Sometimes I will watch things that are rated higher than 6 and I'll be like mm, that wasn't a 6 or better that was worse and I shouldn't have wasted my time on it. So when I say that I rated it like somewhere between a 6 and a 7, I meant that it was watchable but not very good. So At this point, the watchability is decreasing because all of the things that made the first couple episodes good, and most of that was Elrond, are not present here. And all the problems are still there, and they're dumping additional problems, making plot holes and writing issues that I'm just like, I can't enjoy this story if you're going to make it this hard to buy into, guys. It's just not that good. So, they're going to have to really step up their game in the next episode or two for me to have any hope that this is going to go anywhere other than in the trash bin, ultimately. I already am convinced that no matter what happens after this, season one is just going to go down in history as, like, meh. I mean, there are a lot of people who are saying, like, 9 out of 10, 10 out of 10. I'm like, y'all have low standards, because this show ain't that. This show is not that good. I have seen television shows recently that I have thought were way better than this that I would not rate a 10 or even a 9. And this is definitely not up there. So I'm just like, where are you people are getting this 9 out of 10 stuff? I don't know because the writing is not great. Sometimes it's okay. The characterizations are hit or miss. The plot lines are slow to get going. Sometimes contradictory. Sometimes just don't make sense. Some of them are, why is this plot line here? Like, three episodes into an eight-episode season, I should be a little more bought in by now. I really should. So, that is... I'm just going to leave it there. There's, there's a many other things that I could comment on about this, but I didn't want to run too long. I've already gone way longer than I really intended. But there's just so many things that I did not like about this episode that I just wanted to put a good bit of it out there to show why I think there's some serious problems here. And again, we still haven't contradicted outright a lot of the lore. There are some contradictions. Like I said, Elendil being apparently completely unknown to Queen Muriel makes no sense in terms of the lore. There's other things that don't make sense in terms of lore, but so far there's still relatively little that is an outright contradiction, but it's still mostly just fan fiction, and it's not very well written fan fiction, and it's The character drama is not very good, except for Elrond, who we didn't get in this episode. Like, I want my Elrond. I liked his story, and you left it out. I hope they bring him back in episode four. I'm sure they probably will. And we'll probably get lots of tension between him, Gilgalad, galad and Durin. So maybe that'll help me get back into, you know, being at least willing to watch the show a little longer. But, barring something like that, I mean, I'm just looking at this show going... This is a downhill slide, and I don't like the looks of the bottom of the hill. So, that is my assessment of Episode 3 of The Rings of Power. I will catch you on the next review next week, and of course I'm still releasing my weekly videos on Mondays as well, so you can catch those. Social links in the description below. Until the next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek, signing out for the Tolkien Lore Channel. Namariye. Thanks to all my Patreon and Utreon supporters, including Ringbearers Ego Voice and Amir Ali, and Elf Friends PA Brew News, Tracy Meehan, Nathan DeFore, and Paul Leone.